Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you. And thank you for coming to take another deep dive into crime with us. As always, please be sure to check out the episode description for timestamps, as well as using our support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive and using our TikTok and Instagram links to follow us. Today, we're going to be talking about former and NBA player Brian Williams, otherwise known as Bison Daylay. Now, his disappearance was very, very mysterious and strange. It really has still gone unsolved for the most part, but we already know what happened. It's just a very cautionary tale of betrayal by someone in your own family. But with that, let's get right into the case. Brian Carson Williams was born on April 6th, 1969 in Fresno, California. His parents' names were Patricia Phillips and Gino Williams. And his father, Gino, was actually a member of a music group called The Platters. And the family traveled a lot in order to keep up with the group because they were on the road a good amount. But unfortunately, Brian's parents divorced while he was still pretty young. Brian also had an older brother named Kevin and they were pretty close growing up. Now, Brian had very big, beautiful blue eyes and he was very handsome as a child and people always thought he was just so cute, so innocent, so sweet. But if there was something about Brian, he was very, very tall and he was just primed to be a basketball player. It was almost like he was born to play basketball and Brian did just that. He was a basketball star in high school. Now, first he attended Bishop Gorman High School in Las Vegas and then he attended Santa Monica Catholic High School in California, where he just absolutely dominated on the court. Upon graduating high school, Brian attended the University of Maryland, where he won Rookie of the Year, which was no surprise given his height, his skill. After attending the University of Maryland for one year, Brian transferred to the University of Arizona in 1988, where he exploded on the court. He just continued to blossom and continued to get better and better as a basketball player. He averaged 14 points and seven rebounds. In 1991, Brian was selected to be on the All-Pac-10 team during his junior year of college. All-Pac-10 is almost like the all-stars for basketball, but for college. It's where the best players in the conference all come together and play against each other. And you have to be really, really good in order to get selected for that, which Brian was. Now, by the time Brian was in high school, he stood at 6'11", and he was only going to get better. Brian's coaches knew this, he knew this. So he decided to leave college a year early and enter the NBA draft during his junior year. And in the 1991 NBA draft, Brian was selected by the Orlando Magic as the number 10 pick. Now he didn't stay with Orlando for long. He moved around a good bit while he was in the NBA. He only played with Orlando for two seasons. Then he played for the Denver Nuggets for another two seasons before playing for the Los Angeles Clippers for one season. And then he rested with the Chicago Bulls from 1990 to 1997. After Brian played for the Chicago Bulls, he became a free agent and he ended up signing a seven-year, $45 million contract with the Detroit Pistons, which is a pretty nice deal. Now, Brian was very quick on the court, especially with his size. This made him a hot commodity, but things for Brian weren't all rosy. In 1992, he was diagnosed with clinical depression, and this was just a year after he entered the NBA. But that same year, he would attempt suicide, and he did so by trying to drive his car into a telephone pole, but he got scared and slammed on the brakes at the last moment. 
His mother, Patricia, also came out and said that one time he took a lot of sleeping pills and attempted to overdose. Because of Brian's issues, he decided to attend treatment and get therapy in order to cope with his depression. But odd incidents would still occur with Brian that were just very impulsive and really worried the people around him. One of those incidents occurring on the team plane while they were on the way to a game. Brian was threatening to open the emergency door on the plane in the middle of the flight. And his teammates were like, you need to chill. Like, this is not funny. And he was touching the door and everything. But he did what he could to keep his depression under control as much as possible. In 1998, Brian ended up changing his name to Bison Dele. His name honored his Cherokee roots and was also the name of one of the first people in his mother's family to be enslaved. So he really wanted to pay homage to his roots and his ancestors. So out of respect, I will be referring to him as Bison or Bison Dele for the remainder of the episode. So just to clarify, Brian Williams is now going by Bison Dele due to the fact that he legally changed his name to this. Now, one thing about Bison was the fact that as much as he was great at basketball, he really wasn't passionate about it. He really just saw it as a means to an end. Now, he never wanted to play long-term. I mean, he had so many other interests and passions. He really just wanted to make a living. Truth be told, he said he felt like a sellout being in the NBA. Once he got financially stable, he decided that he didn't want to play basketball professionally anymore. Before the 1999 season began, Bison Dele retired at 30 years old. He quit only two years into his seven-year contract and he left $36 million on the table. Now he was in his prime and he just left very abruptly, but this just goes to show how much he just wanted to get out. He wanted to live a simpler life. You know, being on the NBA, you're on the road a lot. You're go, 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 even in the off season, if I'm not mistaken, because you still have to keep up with workouts and things like that. But Bison just felt like he didn't have enough time to explore other passions and interests. And he just wanted to live a simpler life with more meaning, just have more time to do his own thing. So once he became financially secure, which he definitely was, because by this point, he had been in the NBA for almost 10 years, he decided it was time to get out. Bison was a very simple guy. I mean, he still drove his old car, he didn't wear or own any fancy jewelry. You know how when guys get money, the first thing they do is go out and buy a chain? That wasn't Bison. He decided that he wanted to travel the world for a few years. He briefly lived in Lebanon, Australia, and the Mediterranean, where he picked up many different hobbies. Bison learned how to play the saxophone, the violin, the trumpet. He even received his pilot's license. So he was a very multifaceted guy. But in early 2002, Bison decided that he wanted to pick up a new hobby. So he learned how to sail and he bought a big catamaran while vacationing in Tahiti. And a catamaran is just a fancy sailboat. He named his catamaran the Hakuna Matata. And with that, he started sailing the South Pacific Ocean. But Brian wouldn't be sailing alone for long. Soon he'd be sailing with a woman known as Serena Carlin. Serena was born on April 4th, 1972 in Berkeley, South Carolina. Her mother's name was Gail Olgren and they were very close. Serena was described as being goofy, loyal. She never caused any trouble with anybody and she was very loving with the people in her life. Not to mention she was gorgeous. Now throughout her life, she worked in a few careers. She kind of just hopped around a lot trying to find her interests, similar to Bison. And she actually met famous musician Prince in a nightclub while she was living in LA and they became really good friends. So much so that Prince asked her to go on tour with him and work for him. After Serena worked for Prince for a little while, 
while, she decided to move to New York City and work for one of her friend's realty businesses. At the same time, Serena really wanted to find love and really focused on finding her soulmate and just having a partner in life to share experiences with. And this is when Bison and Serena met. Serena met Bison through some friends while he played for the Los Angeles Clippers in the 90s. The first time Bison saw Serena, he was instantly attracted to her. He was very into her. He just loved her vibe. Now, Bison's business manager, a man named Kevin Porter, he decided to invite them both to a concert so they could get to know each other a little bit. They both realized that they wanted the same thing. They just wanted to find a soulmate. They wanted to find someone to do life with. Now, Serena, as much as she liked Bison, she never thought anything would really happen with them or things would go anywhere with them because of his career. I mean, he was on the road a lot in the NBA and Serena didn't get to see him much but the two continued to keep in touch with each other throughout the years. But once Bison retired from the NBA, they decided to take their relationship to the next level and they began to date. Serena really, really liked Bison. She thought he was so interesting. He was different, unique, and she liked the fact that they shared the same perspective on life. Things were going fairly well for Serena in her personal life. She was working, living in New York City. Then 9-11 happened and she was very, very shaken up. She just didn't feel safe living in New York City anymore. Bison decided to call her shortly after 9-11 happened, and at the time, he was sailing away in Australia. He asked Serena if she wanted to join him and sail to the South Pacific Ocean and just get away from New York City. Now, by this point, there wasn't really much left for her in New York City. She had to leave her job because the real estate market took a huge blow, and her friend's realty business that she was working for was just no longer successful. So on October 16th, 2001, Bison and Serena decided to leave and sail the South Pacific Ocean. During this vacation, they really connected. This made them more and more serious about each other. This was a very important trip for them and they really were able to bond. They just continued to sail with one another as time went on. And in January of 2002, Bison and Serena decided to dock their boat in Auckland, New Zealand and just relax for a little bit while they figured out where they were gonna go next. But it was at this point, as they were docked on their boat, that Bison's brother, Miles Dayboard, just showed up out of nowhere. Now let's talk about Miles Dayboard for a little bit. Formerly known and born as Kevin Williams. Kevin Williams was Bison's older brother and he was born in 1967. Now he was also very athletic. As a child, he ran track, played water polo, as well as basketball like his younger brother, and he swam, but there was no way Kevin could become a professional athlete because he had severe asthma. Eventually, Kevin Williams changed his name to Miles Dayboard, and this name was inspired by Miles Davis, a musician and a relative. So out of respect, I will be referring to him as Miles Dayboard for the remainder of the episode. Miles was a wanderer. He was a pretty restless soul. He lived in many different areas on the West Coast. He had many different jobs, but he wasn't very happy about it. He felt like he lived in Bison's shadow, and Bison was his younger brother. He would even go to Bison for money if he had fallen on hard times. Now this was said to be a pretty common theme in Bison's family. They would go years without talking to him and out of nowhere just show up and ask him for money. Now jumping back to when Miles showed up in New Zealand out of nowhere when Bison and Serena had docked their boat, they hadn't talked in a few years by this point. So Bison was pretty shocked to see him Bison and Miles had had some issues as adults because Miles really resented Bison's success and he was a little jealous of him, but he decided that he wanted to make things right with his brother. 
So he started living on the boat with Bison and Serena in order to fix his relationship with his brother. According to family and friends, Serena wasn't too happy about this and she had confided in them around the time Miles showed up on the boat. She said that Bison and Miles argued a lot and it made her pretty uncomfortable. I mean, this was years of sibling resentment coming to the surface. To go from not speaking to somebody for a few years to suddenly living with them on a boat, it's pretty isolated, it's a very big change. And Serena had a front row seat to this. She decided to leave the boat to give the brothers some space to work out their differences. Don't get me wrong, her relationship with Bison was still going strong, they were still fine, but she was just uncomfortable being around him and his brothers arguing. I guess Bison had had enough of it too, because a few days after Serena left the boat, Bison left too, and he decided to meet up with her. In May 2002, Bison and Miles had agreed that Miles was going to sail Bison's boat from New Zealand to the French Polynesia by himself. And this was an agreement that they came up with so Bison and Serena could get some space from Miles, have some alone time, and then they were going to fly to the French Polynesia and meet up with Miles at the dock. And this is exactly what happened. Bison and Serena decided to fly to the Maria Island in order to meet up with Miles. A month later, on June 24th, 2002, Miles and Bison's boat, the Hakuna Matata, had reached the shore of the Maria Island in the French Polynesia. By this point, Bison and Serena had flown there and they all met up and got on the boat. Now, Bison and Serena were gonna take the boat to sail to Hawaii to meet up with one of Serena's best friends, a woman named Stacy Steele and Miles was gonna get off the boat and his girlfriend was gonna fly to the French Polynesia and meet him there. Now his girlfriend's name was Erica Wees. She's very important to the story, so don't forget her. Bison and Serena were gonna sail to Hawaii. Miles was gonna get off the boat and wait for his girlfriend to fly to the French Polynesia so they could have a little vacation. And this was gonna continue to give everybody some space from one another. But as Bison and Serena were set to sail to Hawaii, Miles decided last minute to stay on the boat and go with them. They were a little bit apprehensive about this. They were kind of like, eh, we wanted some space from you. We wanted some alone time, but okay. You know, it's kind of hard to say no. And especially with the position Serena was in, I mean, she couldn't say no, he wasn't her brother. Bison felt guilty because Miles really didn't have a whole lot going on. Serena decided to call her friend Stacy, who she was gonna be meeting in Hawaii, and told her that she really wanted Miles to go away. She didn't want him to join them and she wasn't happy about it at all. On July 6th, 2002, the Akuna Matata catamaran set sail around 5 p.m. Bison, Serena, Miles, and a captain that Bison had hired named Bertrand Saldo were on board. They were on the way to an island called Rayatea. Now this was a 20 hour sail from the Morea Island and Serena called her friend Stacy once again and left a message saying that they had set sail and to not be alarmed if she doesn't hear from her for a while because there's really no service on the ocean. The following day on July 7th, 2002, Serena called Bison's business manager, Kevin Porter around 8 p.m. And they spoke for about three minutes and she just told him how everything was going. And she said that Bison wanted to talk to him, but before Bison could speak after taking the phone, the connection dropped. Now this was pretty common because once again, they were in the ocean and the connection wasn't that strong. And Kevin just assumed that Bison would call him back whenever he got reception. But this was the last time that either of them were heard from. Four days later on July 11th, 2002, was Stacy's, Serena's best friend's, her son's birthday. And that was actually the whole reason they were going to Hawaii in the first place. And Serena always called to wish him a happy birthday, but she didn't. 
The following day was Serena's mother, Gail's birthday. But once again, Serena never called. Now, Gail thought this was very odd, but Serena had told her as well that she might not have reception, so to not worry if she doesn't hear from her for a while. But a month later, in August of 2002, Gail became very worried because she still hadn't heard from her daughter. So Gail decided to call Kevin Porter to voice her concerns. She had had Kevin's number because he was her most direct line of access to Bison and Serena while they were on the water. And she was a bit worried. So Kevin said that, you know, it's normal to not hear from Bison for months when he's sailing. You know, he kind of just goes off, does his own thing and disappears off the face of the earth, but he always ends up resurfacing. Gail understood, but she just knew that something wasn't right. Maybe Bison did that, but she knew her daughter and her daughter would not go that long without talking to her. Gail called Kevin back a few days later and asked him to check and see if everything was okay with Bison and Serena. So Kevin decided to do so just to calm Gail's nerves. The first thing he did was call Bison's bank to check any recent transactions to make sure that they were still okay, they were making transactions. But when Kevin called Bison's bank, they reported some suspicious activity on his account. They found a check for $152,000 written out to a company called Certified Mint for an order of gold coins. Now, Certified Mint was a gold dealer company based in Phoenix, Arizona. And Kevin immediately thought this was odd because Bison never wrote checks. If anything, he hadn't written a check in over five years. So Kevin decided to call the company and he spoke to the owner, a man named Bill Haynes. Kevin asked about this large order of gold coins and Bill told him, oh yeah, we received a call from a man asking for a large order and delivery of gold coins. And he decided to detail the conversation to Kevin. So Bill said that the man called and asked if he knew who the NBA player Brian Williams was. And Bill replied and said, yeah, I know who that is. So the man on the other line identified himself as Brian Williams and said that he wanted to buy gold from his company. Bill said, sure thing, not a problem. And within a few days, he received a check for $152,000 with Brian Williams' name on it. Now at the time Kevin called Certified Mint, the coins had not been delivered yet, but the check had cleared. So Kevin told Bill to hold off on sending the coins because Brian Williams hadn't been heard from in 10 weeks. The odds of him ordering gold coins out of nowhere just didn't make any sense. It was very suspicious. Bill agreed. He said, okay, we'll hold off until we get everything sorted out. He decided to give Kevin the phone number on the check so Kevin could call this number and figure out who the hell ordered all these coins under Bison's birth name. So Kevin called the number and it had a Florida area code. He was sent straight to voicemail. The voicemail message at the end said, yo, this is B, leave a message. And Kevin was immediately alarmed because he knew that that wasn't Bison's voice. He recognized that voice as being none other than Miles Dayboard. So shortly after Kevin was sent to voicemail, he received a call back from the number and it was Miles. And Miles just answered the phone all casual, like nothing was wrong, like this wasn't weird. Kevin told him, you know, hey, we're trying to find Bison and Serena. They haven't been heard from in a while. You know, where are they? But Miles said that he hadn't heard from them in four to five months. And he said he didn't know anything about where they were or the last place they had been. And after that, the call ended. But wasn't Miles supposed to be on the boat with them? Wasn't he sailing away to Hawaii with them? 
So why is he now back on the mainland with a Florida number area code ordering coins? It made no sense at all. Kevin definitely was not letting this go. He knew something was wrong, but he didn't want to let Miles know that he was on to him because he wanted him to keep cooperating. So Kevin just hangs up the phone and acts like everything's fine and everything's normal. In reality, Kevin called Bill Haynes back, the owner of Certified Mint that had received this huge check. So they both decided to formulate a plan and called the FBI to figure out how they could catch Miles in the act picking up these coins. It was around this time that Kevin Porter filed a missing persons report in Detroit, Michigan for Bison Daylay. And Serena's family did the same. They filed a missing persons report for her in Denver, Colorado. Bill Haynes called the Phoenix Police Department to report a fraudulent check and impersonation of a recipient. And they investigated the check, which as I said earlier, did in fact clear because it came from Bison's account and Bison was a millionaire. So Miles at this point has no idea that all of this is brewing behind the scenes. He has no clue that anybody's onto him. And he ends up calling Bill Haynes, the owner of Certified Mint, to arrange for the coins to be delivered in person. So he wanted to actually go to Phoenix and pick the coins up. Why he made this change, I don't know, but this pretty much put him in the perfect position to be caught. And the Phoenix Police Department decided they were going to conduct a sting operation to arrest Miles when he came to pick up the coins. So on September 5th, 2002, in Phoenix, Arizona, around 4 p.m., 19 officers were waiting at Certified Mint for Miles Dayboard to show up. Some officers were planted inside the store while others were out in the parking lot. Once again, Miles has no idea that anybody's onto him. So he enters Certified Mint and he identifies himself as his brother's birth name, Brian Williams. And Bill Haynes asks him to sign a paper in order to receive this large order of gold coins, to which he signs the paper as Brian Williams. Before the ink was even dry, Miles was immediately arrested for forgery. And once police searched his person, they found that he had Bison's passport and credit card on him. He was brought into the police station for questioning and he was interrogated by Sergeant Mary Roberts. And she asked him flat out if he was responsible for the disappearance of Bison Daley and Serena Carlin, to which he replied, of course not. Sergeant Roberts then asked if he knew where they were. And he, once again, he said he didn't. Miles then goes on to say that Bison sent him to retrieve the gold coins for him. But when they ask him why, he says he can't tell them. Then Miles goes on to say that Kevin Porter, Bison's business manager who literally helped conduct the sting operation, says that he can corroborate his story for him. By this point, Kevin had already flown in from Detroit to Phoenix to help with the investigation. And he was also brought into the interrogation room with Miles. Sergeant Roberts decided to step out and let them talk. And this was all caught on camera. Miles said to Kevin, if you can get me out of this, I can tell you everything that's happening. And it was at this point that Miles told Kevin that Bison and Serena were in trouble and that he's trying to get money to return to Tahiti and help them. He also said they were alive when he left, but he doesn't know if they are now. So, wow, this was pretty intense, pretty scary. Miles was in police custody for seven hours before the district attorney ordered that he be released. They claimed that there wasn't enough evidence to hold him, but they literally have proof that he cashed a fraudulent check and forged his brother's name. So I don't know how that's not enough proof to hold someone, but okay. And of course, as soon as Miles 
gets released, he decides to get the hell out of there and he heads to the airport immediately. But Kevin was not gonna let him go. He knew something was wrong. I mean, how do you just drop information like that and then get on a plane? Kevin followed him to the airport and continued to question him about where Bison and Serena were so he could do what he could to help. But Miles wouldn't tell him any more information. And it was at this point that Kevin got pissed and he started choking Miles out in the middle of the airport. Miles says to Kevin, come to Mexico with me because California and Arizona carry the death penalty. And Kevin was like, I'm not going anywhere with you. Just tell me where Bison and Serena are. But Miles never answered him and he decided to get on a plane and he was headed to San Jose, California. And this was the last time that they ever saw each other. Kevin was just so mad. He was so frustrated that Miles was even released in the first place because he was given the opportunity to get the hell out of town. Again, I don't know how they didn't have enough evidence on him when they literally had proof that he committed fraud and then they let him go and he got the hell out of the state the same day. Later that day, Kevin decides to call one of Bison's friends, a man named Patrick Byrne, to fly into Phoenix and help him with the investigation. As soon as they met up and Kevin picked Patrick up from the airport, Kevin's phone rang and it was none other than Miles Dayboard. And both Kevin and Patrick spoke to him on the phone. And Patrick spoke to Miles for about 45 minutes, but he felt like the conversation was going in circles. Miles really was just giving them the runaround. Now Miles was saying that Bison and Serena were okay, but that they were being held against their will. Now recall he said he didn't know if they were alive or not, but now he's saying they're fine. Patrick decided to offer to take his personal plane and go to any bank in America right now and get money to get Bison and Serena back. Now Patrick already knew that something was going on with Miles and that he may have done something to Bison and Serena, but he wanted wanted to play the game, call his bluff, make it seem like he believed his story so he could offer help. But for some reason, Miles was reluctant to this offer. I mean, if your whole goal was to get money to help Bison and Serena, why are you not taking somebody else's help to do the same thing? Miles agreed that he was gonna keep them updated, but that he was gonna continue to go on the run. I don't know why an innocent person is on the run. Once Miles' plane had landed in California, he decided to go straight to his girlfriend Erica's job. His girlfriend that I told you to pay attention to, he decides to go straight to her job and tell her goodbye and that he loved her. He told her that he was in a lot of trouble and that whatever happened was a complete accident. And for the first time, he told somebody, his girlfriend Erica, that Serena was missing. And he said he didn't wanna contact her family until he was across the Mexican border. Again, if you're not guilty, why are you doing all of these things to evade people? And Erica agreed to drive Miles to Tijuana in order to get him over the border. As they were on the way there, Miles detailed to her what happened on the boat. Now this was according to Erica. This is her recounting the story of what Miles told her. So this is all alleged. We don't know if it's true or not, but this is Erica's account based on Miles' account. On July 7th, 2002, early in the morning, Bison Dele woke up on the Hakuna Matata. And Miles told Bison that he wanted to enjoy his last day of sailing with them. To which Bison replied, you're welcome to sail with us anytime. You know, what are you talking about? You don't have to leave if you don't want to. To which Miles replied, don't lie to me. You never wanted me here anyway. Which was true, but Bison wasn't gonna tell him that. It was at this point that the brothers began to argue, which escalated into a physical altercation. And the captain, Bertrand Saldo, who was driving the boat, he tried to break up the fight between the two brothers. 
Serena also joined in and she jumped on Bison's back to pull him off of Miles. But it was at this point that Bison pushed Serena and punched her in the face, thinking it was the captain. Once Bison pushed Serena, she fell head first into a boat davit. And a davit is a crane-like structure on a boat that's used to lower or raise the life rafts in and out of the water. It's a pretty hard, solid mechanism. It was said that Serena hit her head on this. Miles said to Bison as he looked at her on the ground that Serena was dead. And Captain Saldo said that he wanted to call the authorities immediately, but Bison disagreed. He didn't want anybody to know that he had accidentally killed Serena. And it was at this point that Bison picked up a wrench and struck Captain Saldo in the head twice, killing him. Bison begged Miles to help him cover everything up because by this point he had now killed two people, one by accident and one on purpose because this person wanted to call the police. Miles decided to run into the cabin of the catamaran and came back with a gun because he was scared of what Bison was gonna do next. I mean, he had just seen him kill two people. So Miles decides to pull the gun out on his brother and he shot Bison once in the chest. And it was at this point that he was killed. Miles then said that he tied weights to the bodies of Captain Bertrand Saldo, Serena Carlin, and Bison Dele and pushed them into the ocean. Once again, I want to make it clear, this is all alleged and cannot be proven. This was Miles' account of events being told through his girlfriend at the time, Erica. So we do not know if this is true or not. So by this time, we're entering the beginning of September, September 8, 2002, which is when Erica was driving Miles to Tijuana, the Mexican border, and telling her this crazy, crazy story that left Bison, Serena, and Captain Bertrand Saldo dead. The next day, September 9, 2002, Erica reports everything Miles told her to the police department in Northern California. And the police department decided that they had to contact the FBI. And it was at this point that Miles Dayboard was listed as a wanted man. The manhunt for him began. Now, Bison's friend Patrick was still in contact with Miles at this point. He was trying to lure him to come back to the US, acting like he still believed his account of things that Bison and Serena were in trouble, that they needed help, and that had to get some sort of ransom money for them. And Patrick was still promising Miles this ransom money so he could help save Bison and Serena since that was Miles' whole point in buying these gold coins, right? But what Miles doesn't know is that Patrick is working with the FBI. Miles decides to call him and Bison's estranged mother, Patricia Phillips. They also hadn't spoken in a few years. He told her that he loved her and wants to know that she loves him too. She replied she promised that she loved him just as much. Now, Patrick, he's still working with the FBI. Kevin's working with the FBI. They're trying to get Miles to come back to the United States. And Patricia told Miles during this phone call where Miles had called her for the first time in two years, she decided to tell Miles that Patrick was working with the FBI. So she pretty much just blew him up. She told Patrick that she told Miles this. And Patrick was like, why the hell would you do that? I mean, you're blowing our cover. We're trying to get him caught. But she was on her son's side at this point, even though he may have possibly killed one of her other sons. Now, Miles had been somewhat cooperative with Patrick at this point because he trusted that he was on his side. But now that Miles's mom told him that Patrick was working with the FBI, the chances of him being able to lure him back into the US were slim to none. On September 11th, 2002, Miles surprisingly agreed to have Patrick meet up with him in Tijuana. He knows that Patrick's working with the FBI. So for him to agree to meet with him was 
pretty shocking. So Patrick immediately packed a suitcase, filled it with some clothes, a hammer, and duct tape and decided to head to Tijuana. Now he did this because he didn't know what the hell Miles was gonna try. So he wanted to make sure he was ready. Don't know how he got that on the plane, but okay. Patrick arrived in Tijuana and he waited for Miles to call him at the time that they had agreed on, but he never called. And Patrick was in Tijuana for two days searching for Miles, but he never found him. Two days later on September 13th, 2002, Miles called his mother, Patricia, for the last time, and she didn't pick up, so he decided to leave her a voicemail. Miles says, I love you, mom, and I'm very sorry. I didn't do this. I swear to God, I didn't do this. Goodbye. The next day, on September 14th, 2002, Miles was found unconscious and rushed to an emergency room in Tijuana. He had no ID on him, so no one knew who he was, but he had a pretty distinct body type. And his body type was listed under his FBI's most wanted description, but yet he still wasn't identified. No one connected those dots. Hours after being brought into the emergency room, Miles was driven to the border by Tijuana officials and picked up by US authorities, where he was transported to Scripps Memorial Hospital in Chula Vista, California. And Miles was in a coma for several days. And after being fingerprinted, he was positively identified as wanted fugitive Miles Dayboard. Doctors determined that Miles was simply not gonna wake up from his coma. He was brain dead. He had been brain dead for too long. And his parents, Patricia and Gino, came together and decided to take their son off life support. And on September 27th, 2002, Miles Dayboard was pronounced dead at 35 years old. And it was found that he had purposely overdosed on insulin. So jumping back to when before Miles was found dead, on September 13, 2002, a team of FBI agents decided to fly to Tahiti to begin their investigation and collect evidence. The French Polynesian authorities have located Bison's catamaran at this point, so the FBI decides to do forensics on the boat to process evidence. The boat had been repainted and renamed from the Hakuna Matata to the Aria Bella, which was odd, and the evidence on board did not match Miles' account at all that he had given to his girlfriend, Erica. Now remember, he claimed that Bison killed both Serena and Captain Saldo through blunt force trauma to the head. But there was no blood spatter found on the catamaran. The FBI theorized that Miles killed his brother and tried to take his identity and live his life. They also believe that he killed everyone on board because they were witnesses to this crime. They think that he was definitely jealous of his brother. He was resentful of his success and the fact that he had so much money. He was living life. He had an amazing girlfriend. And I think Miles just wanted his brother's life. On October 12th, 2002, a few weeks after Miles had committed suicide, a memorial service was held in Los Angeles for both Bison Daylay and Miles Dayboard, and about 250 people showed up. Serena's family decided to hold a separate memorial service for her in Berkeley, California. And I can't imagine how hard it is to memorialize a loved one without closure. The bodies of Bison Daylay, Serena Carlin, and Bertrand Soldo were never found. Bison was 33, Serena was 30, and Bertrand was 32. And not having their remains makes it so much harder to come to terms with their loss. I mean, they didn't even get to say goodbye to their loved ones. And unfortunately, we'll never know what exactly happened to them. I mean, Miles' account just doesn't sound very realistic at all. It's obvious that he was responsible for this, but he died and unfortunately, all the answers died with him. 
Looking back, it definitely seems like Miles showed up out of nowhere back in Auckland, New Zealand when Bison's boat was docked and he was with Serena for money. He gave the guys that he wanted to work on his relationship with his brother, but I definitely have a feeling that he probably just fell on hard times and decided that he wanted to use his brother one last time. At the time he met up with Bison, he was actually broke and unemployed. Patricia, Bison and Miles' mother, believes that Miles didn't act alone, if he did at all. I think she's just kind of in denial about the fact that one of her sons could be capable of killing three people, including one of her other sons, but I'm sure she's just struggling to deal with the loss of both of them. I mean, that's pretty hard to come to terms with. Serena's family and friends really find comfort in the fact that she found the love she was looking for in Bison, and even though they met a very tragic end, at least they were able to experience the love that they both were longing for up until the time that they both passed away. And my heart really does go out to Bertrand Saul Aldo's family as well. I mean, he was just doing his job. He wasn't involved in any kind of issues that they had had at all. And neither was Serena, but yet they both had to pay the ultimate price. And all Bison did, I'm sure, was try to help his brother as much as he could, even though his brother definitely used him a lot. And for him to be killed by him when all he wanted to do was help him out and do what he could to support him is just really, really heartbreaking. I mean, Miles was very selfish. He was jealous, envious, and he couldn't live with the fact that his younger brother was more successful than him. So for him to take his life after trying to take his identity just goes to show that he never cared about his brother. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up this episode. We will be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you in the water soon.